trying to define impact. Impact is very personal. Whether I'm an investor, whether I'm a business owner, or whether I'm a beneficiary of the impact, you define it very personally, very contextual. Welcome to Positive. Find us on Twitter at POSI, the number two IVE. This bi-weekly podcast is for active investors and founders just like you, focused on venture-scale positive impacts. I'm your host, Zeka Len, an angel investor in the private capital markets here in sunny SoCal. Today's guest is David Gallipo, founding partner at SGDX in Singapore. He's also the director at the Eunice Near Future Lab based out of the Asian Institute of Technology in Bangkok. I'm very excited to share this episode as David has more than a decade of recent experience working to develop the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, specific to tech impact investing at the UN. Welcome to the show, David. Great. Thanks. It's nice to be here. As planned, this episode will include three sections. The first is the journey to information integrity, the next is sustainability and venture, and last, our future on the near horizon. Before we break into the sections, what are you currently working on and can you tell us what makes you passionate about working in tech and impact? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I'll actually turn the questions around. <laughs> I think the passion comes when... Uh, when, I, when I did my undergrad in Canada, it was basically a business economics uh, finance undergrad, and I joined the commodity world. So I got to understand the world of finance relatively quickly, and it was an exciting time. This was the time before the internet, and it was really sort of an exciting time. Um, but then I sort of did my you know barefoot around the world, ended up in Europe, and I spent 20 years in Europe, and I was fascinated with Europe. I mean, I thought Canada was a cool place, but Europe was really cool. I mean, the people were smart, they had history, they understood philosophy, they knew languages. And that's when I started to realize that the world is a large place, and it has a lot of different variations. And I spent 20 years there. I did a lot of education um, on the East Coast of the, of the United States, ended up back in Europe, where I went into the dot-com phase. So this is sort of the 95 to 2000 phase. And I really got excited by technology. The internet was brand new. People didn't know where it was going. New concepts of financing, like the VC sort of sector, was created to manage that risk. Um, and that was an exciting time. So technology all of a sudden became a big part of my passion as well. Um, but I got lucky, uh, two of the companies uh, that I'd started got acquired, and um, I ended up in Switzerland. I really enjoyed Switzerland, but I was looking for something else to do. And I've done sort of academia and research. I've done the corporate life. I've done technology startups. Um, and then I saw the development sector, the, the United Nations, and I really didn't know anything about the development sector. I was a pure product of business schools, the corporate side, and, and, and the technology side. Can you give so us I joined the UN. what year this may have been? Yeah, so I joined the UN around 2005 in Geneva. And this has brought out sort of the third passion, that really that the world needs a lot of help. And the private sector, technology, financing can really actually help. It can really sort of accelerate reduction of poverty, um, inequalities. Um, and that was sort of my third passion. So beyond basically the knowledge and education and the technology and finance, 
now this passion of impact sort of uh, became a big part of my life. And about 10 years ago, I came out to Bangkok to work at the regional center of the UNDP and started their social innovation, social entrepreneurship, and their impact investing portfolios, which were really brand new for the United Nations. And that sort of brought everything together. So that's where I sort of end up right now, where it really is a nexus of deep technology, sort of uh, new models of finance and alternative financing, and this concept of impact, or the SDGs as the United Nations framework, but just the concept of impact and sustainability. And oddly enough, where I am in my life now, sort of the world is at the same time having this sort of same revelation that these three sectors have to sort of come together and there's a lot of positive impact that can be created. Can you give me an idea in your mind as, as more of an expert what the differentiation is between sustainability, social entrepreneurship, and um, social impact? This is a big issue at the moment. And... Um, especially when you talk about financing and, and technology. So when you take finance, for example, KPIs, P&Ls, everything is measured down to the penny. It's a very precise mathematical way to measure success. Technology is something similar. You can measure success in technology um, through different types of KPIs, whether they're economic KPIs. But when you take the concepts of impact, let's say, or sustainability, very hard to measure very qualitative measurements. There's not a lot of math behind it. And this now becomes a bit of a problem between, you know, how do you apply sustainability and impact to areas of innovation, for example, or entrepreneurship, or financing, whether it's venture capital or more institutional types of uh, financing. So it's very difficult to sort of bring these two worlds together. And that's the one thing I did find working with the United Nations, the development sector and the SDGs were really around sort of the soft measurements um, in the 17 compartments, 17 goals of the SDGs, but they were not made for the private sector. So they didn't have these KPIs or financial measurement metrics that can be applied to them. And I think that's the process that's going through right now, trying to figure out now how can you really measure impact through investments or through uh, business development. And I think also, you do have the worlds of social innovation and social entrepreneurship, but they're really becoming quite common, I think. I think you see a lot of uh, um, secondary schools and graduate schools focusing a little bit on social entrepreneurship, trying to create impact business models, how to sort of integrate the impact sort of measurements within a business model, how do you expand business at the same time expand impact and sustainability. But I think there's probably in my opinion anyways i think there's just way too much time being spent trying to define impact or trying to define sustainability and i think that's where the problem lies that there's there, there, there's it's, it's like trying to define in very small amount of words investment it's very difficult yeah. so i think you have to sort of work these two together and slowly i think over time um i think especially now with new mathematical models they will be able to finally measure um, impact in relationship to how much is being invested or how a business actually grows and has an impact on its supply chains, for example, or its workers and staff, or its products and services. Can you tell me, do you feel that subjectivity in regards to not being able to clearly define terminology among parties 
and the potential personal risks or brand risks that get associated with that subjectivity component. Do you feel that maybe being too stringent about who defines and how we define together perhaps works against this movement? Definitely. I think that's, uh, that hits a nail um, right on the head. It's like to, trying to define innovation. It's a very difficult. You, you will find 10 different definitions of innovation across different types of organizations. So I think when you're trying to define impact, impact is very personal. And whether I'm an investor, whether I'm a business owner, or whether I'm a beneficiary of the impact, you define it very personally. It's very contextual. It's very local in that sense. So you may find that there is an impact investment fund that focuses, let's say, on energy. Um, and that, let's say they focus on rural energy, so getting energy out to the rural areas to develop the economies out there, maybe create jobs in the rural areas. That's a very good definition of impact. It's a very worthwhile definition of impact. But it's not the definition of energy, and it's certainly not the definition of impact in general. So I think it becomes very contextual, and I think people just have to simply agree when they talk about the word success. So what, what makes my business a success? It's a very personal thing if I'm a business owner. And it could be that I can provide for my family. It could be that it creates a huge amount of profits. It could be that it has a large impact on my consumers. It creates a lot of value for my consumers. So there's different ways to actually define these things. And I think the more um, latitude that we give people to define it, that is going to be, it's going to open the doors. It's going to open the floodgates. Now, what we do need, I think, is some standardized impact measurement model simply to very similar to the accounting principles which are basically universal and this just makes it a lot easier for investors for example right now it's very difficult as an investor to invest let's say an agriculture um, investment in india with an energy investment or an education investment in africa because on the impact side they vary on the financial side you can measure it it comes down standard KPIs for investors. But on the impact side, it now it becomes very different depending on the community that you're impacting. So I think there needs to be some universal set of impact measurement guidelines that can be applied to businesses or business models. And I think that will energize um, a lot of investors to better understand impact, um, to better sort of create a pathway towards impact or to include impact in their portfolio theory, for example, or their investment thesis. I see. Well, let's continue in, on this journey in, in terms of the information integrity. It sounds like what you're suggesting is that information integrity um, is very important. Um, I, I did have to look that term up in terms of uh, how Wikipedia frames it. Um, it is the practice of being honest and showing a consistent and uncompromising adherence to strong moral and ethical principles and values. Tell us about uh, what information, how in information integrity ties into your work. Well, this becomes very important, especially on the impact side, because there's a big difference, let's say, between an investment or a business, a for-profit enterprise, and a nonprofit enterprise. And I think it really comes down to the goals that they set. So at the beginning of the year, for example, a nonprofit will set goals towards the end of the years and they drive towards those goals. Um, and that's what they're trying to achieve. And they have to be very honest in what they are sort of reporting. 
because it does have a direct impact on their beneficiaries, their users. So if it's a low-cost education um, organization that they're putting together, um, they have direct goals. They have responsibilities for the students. They have responsibilities to the teachers. They also have responsibilities to the pa uh, to the parents to try to build that. And it, 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 and honesty becomes very important, especially when you're relying your business model relies on grant funding mm -hmm. to come in or, do or donations. On the opposite side, when you take a for-profit or a business model, you do set your goals on an annual basis or on a maybe a six-month basis, but they're quite flexible. And the mantra right now is to be agile. So as the economy starts to change, as consumer behavior starts to change, your business model changes. And you're trying to, you're, you're chasing consumers on a lot of sides. You're trying to also not only satisfy the consumers that you do have, but maybe create new consumers. So you're coming up with new innovations. You're trying new things. The risk involved is a lot higher because you're changing your, your, your marketing mix, for example, or you're cha changing your product service mix. So there's a lot of different variations that you can do on the business side, but day by day, month by month, the measurement always comes down to dollars and cents. You can measure it. And if you're not being successful, let's say you put a new product on the market that's just simply not selling, well, then you have a choice. You can just simply stop or change it or modify it. Um, so you, there's a lot more flexibility, I think, in a for-profit model than there is in a non-for-profit model. And the honesty, I guess, on a business model is you're creating value. And that value may be real, but it may be perceived value. Look at the fashion industry, for example, um, fast-moving consumer goods, for example. So even if it's a perception of value, as long as your consumers are happy mm -hmm. and they're buying your products and services, well, then that's a successful business model. Yeah. Where on the, on the nonprofit side, it's, it's slightly different. Yes, I, I like the analogy of using fashion. I think it triggers... It triggers a type of nuance that could easily be overlooked in that the utility that people get from enjoying their self-confidence, their self-worth, is to be seen on some level as an impact. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is where the fashion industry is a very, it's a, it's a fascinating industry because they really do know how to shape behaviors. Uh, I wish the UN and some of the other organizations would really learn from the fashion industry about how to shape behaviors um, and condition behaviors from that. But, but this is where it's sort of secondary to a certain extent. You want people to feel confident, for example. Well, maybe feeling confident is wearing a red t-shirt this season because red t-shirts are in. So it's a bit of a subjective way of looking at things. Where on the nonprofit model, let's say the education model we're talking about before, um, you want children and kids to feel confident but that d depends on the knowledge that they learn and how they develop their social skills within a classroom that these are much different things than simply putting on a red t-shirt and all of a sudden you're cool for this season. yeah it's not it's not a replacement for world changing world improving outcomes that that, that are of a different scale you're, you're, you're it's basically a difference between happiness and life satisfaction Exactly, and that's what touches on your your original question around this concept of integrity. Where the integrity, I think, is really more pure, let's say, in a nonprofit model, and more maybe subjective mm -hmm. in a for-profit model. Yeah, I've been discussing recently um, on Twitter about the impact risks that are associated with venture capital. The more we accept impact as part of the proposition that we carry through, 
the, the more likely it is that that could just be simply gutted. And um, there's the hope that certain things will turn into world-changing, awesome, you know, rev revolutionary, awesome things. The, the fact remains that one never knows. I, I'd like to tie that into another question uh, about this uh, behavioral change and or other impact measurements that startups could track. What are what are maybe three of those? If you had to take a pick for startups, what would you what would you uh, steer them toward? You mean the behavioral changes? And metrics that startups could track that could lead to better behavioral changes um, or more world improving outcomes and or just measuring the enhancement of their customer utility. Well, it's, 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 it's interesting. I, I, I do a lot of coaching, a lot of pitch coaching. I talk to a lot of startups, uh, social startups and very commercial startups. Um, a lot of it is around this new technologies that are coming out over the next 10 years. And the, the way when I'm looking at impact, I often get asked, well, how do we sort of measure impact? What is impact? How do we sort of create impact? And what, when I talk to them, there, there really, really is three areas where you can look at that. And it's really on your input side, what you do today, and on your output side. So let's say you're producing products. You've got some sort of manufacturing uh, plant. You're producing some, some tangible products, whatever. But impact can be created within the company itself. I agree. Um, and, and I think this is a lot of people don't think about this, and I think also from the investment standpoint. If you were to create your manufacturing workflow, for example, to be open to blind people, for example, yeah. deaf, people in wheelchairs, diversity and inclusion um, components, minorities, yeah. Yeah, minorities across the board, and any disadvantage, giving them opportunity within, you give them proper work hours, you give them a proper pay system, um, you would work on sort of this uh, work-life balance sort of concept. Um, that's a lot of impact. That's a huge amount of impact that can just be created within your own organization. So that's one. Then you look downstream. So you look at all your supply chains, where you're getting your raw materials from, where you're getting um, your energy from, uh, the water that you're using, everything, all, all the ingredients that are actually feeding into your business. How can that now become more greener, more friendly, more efficient? Um, that's another whole area of change that any startup can really look at to make sure that they're getting sustainable products, um, sustainable or green uh, supply chains, all the stuff coming into their organization. Um, that's one area to look. Or buy from other social enterprises, for example. That's another side. And then obviously on your output side, your products and your services. What are your products and services? Can they be made in a more friendly way? whether it's socially friendly, whether it's environmentally friendly, or even governance friendly, for example, slave labor. Um, how are they delivered? How are they being marketed? How are they being packaged? Um, who are you delivering to? Can you get to the last mile? Can you get to the bottom of the pyramid? Is there any other value that your products and services could be created um, within certain sectors, like education? Can you sort of take a lateral um, look at your products and services? On one side, it may create a new um, revenue stream, but on the other side, you may be able to take your product and service and supply it to the humanitarian sector. They may be able to use it as well. So there is three defined areas of impact that business owners and founders can look at to create impact. Investors can actually look at to create impact, and even consumers can look at to sort of demand impact. Oh, interesting. The consumer side, can you share a bit more about that? 
I mean, in the end, I mean, you hear a lot of this discussion around uh, sustainable capitalism. It's coming out of the World Economic Forum. Um, there's a lot of drive towards new sustainable business models of that. But I don't think the real decision makers comes down to the corporations or the business owner. I think the main drivers on change and goes into the behavioral change around impact is really around shareholders on one side, those supplying finances to the business, and consumers on the other side, those buying the products and services. And quite honestly, the business is just sort of stuck in the middle. It has to respond to both sides. So, And we see it now a little bit. We're starting to see shareholders demanding more sustainable um, business models, more sustainable ways of supply chains and logistics, uh, more sustainable markets getting into the rural economy, for example, or servicing the disadvantaged or the minorities, for example. So we're seeing the shareholders sort of shifting their mindset a little bit, and that's having a definite impact on companies, whether they're startups or corporations. And on the opposite side, you've got consumers. Consumers slowly are starting to demand uh, products and services that are a little friendlier. They're greener. They come from sustainable products. They look at circular economy issues. They look at plastics. They look at these. So when the consumer now starts to change their mindset, then again, the company has to respond. I mean, the company is simply there to deliver value to consumers, but also deliver value to its investors and shareholders. So with all this focus, I think, on companies, I think the focus should actually be on shareholders so they understand impact and they start to request or demand more impact with their investments. And consumers, if they understand impact, whether the SDGs or not, but they understand impact and they start to demand more product and services. And I think a little bit, this just starting now, I think it's, and I think it's fascinating, is labor, talent. I think what I see here in Asia anyways, there's a lot of the graduates coming out of undergrad and graduate schools that want to work for a good company, that want to work for a company that has sustainable business models. And, you know, the hunt for talent is on. Um, if you want to be successful, you have to attract talent. If your company cannot attract talent, um, it's a big problem. So I think slowly by slowly around the um, those that wanting to work, they are also demanding that they work or their company values and principles are actually in line with sustainability. I don't think it's a big thing right now, but I think in the future, I think that is actually going to be a big driver for change for companies. Uh, founders in the U.S., to my understanding, the common shareholders, as they get started in the private market, they hold themselves as the ultimate stakeholder unless there's an element of debt involved. If, let's say, the founders want to build a company with the right DNA to be able to support all these different tiers of, of impact on the internal, the downstream, the product, the consumer side, I'm wondering what pitfalls you've seen yourself in situations like that with startups, startups that you mentor and or how startups can help sustain those, those um, different components of impact. Wow, that's a that's a really interesting question, and I think it it really comes out I think from you know what is driving the founder, and my experience, for example, when I work with social innovators, um, founders that have created a an impact enterprise or an impact business, that impact side is very close to their hearts. 
Um, it's what they want to do. It's part of their their it's part of their own personal DNA, and they try to sort of bring that out through the company. Um, this now becomes a bit of a problem, especially I've seen for VCs who want to invest and they want to take an equity stake. A lot of the uh, social innovators, they're, 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 they're very reluctant to give up equity stake and take that type of risk or growth investment into their business. And they, they sometimes have the feeling that if they grow their business, the impact, it will be diluted. Um, and I think this is a mindset that, that has to be equated on both sides, that VCs have to be um, sensitive to that and understand you know, where the founder is coming from on one side. But founders also have to understand that if their business doesn't grow, their impact cannot grow. And often what we see is when business grows, that impact can grow actually exponentially because impact uh, has sort of a ripple effect. If I help someone in the family, for example, if I give a job to a young family, well, that person now who has now reliable income, maybe they pay for extra health or better education for their children. So there is a bit of a, a ripple effect on the impact side. And I think that becomes very relevant. But I think also at the same time, um, a lot of venture capital now is looking at, for example, convertibles, equity that converts back into debt, for example, where the founder can take back part of that equity. And they feel a little more comfortable on that side. So I think that is one side, especially if you work with social innovation um, or founders that have really created their social business model. The other side is that when you talk with founders who have a successful business and all of a sudden realize that their business can be used or their products and services can be used for humanitarian purposes, I think it's a much easier pivot that way. So when you look in that um, early stage uh, seed investing or early stage investing versus let's say growth investing. I think now the opportunities for growth investors and uh, those founders that have companies that are you know, relatively cash neutral or cash plus and wanting to expand, the opportunities and the availability to pivot is a little, there's a lot less resistance at that point. Hmm. So I think it really, it really depends on where you come in as far as your business model is being developed and how sensitive you are um, on really sort of allowing that impact to happen and and giving input on how that impact can actually grow when that business grows. For sure. There's a quote that's been floated um, by A16Z. Uh, they, I can't remember who originally said it. It was um, strong opinions loosely held and those are the types of founders who they're looking for. The, the strength of conviction of, of impact in the startup space can be both a double-edged sword, um, I think. And I think what you're suggesting is there are some tools to be able to mitigate the personal desires, the motivational desires that are both win-win. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a similar camp, if that's what you're saying. Oh, yeah. And, it, and it's very equatable to, let's say, you know, 20, 30 years ago when researchers, for example, and it, it's a little bit similar today, not so much, but previously, a lot of researchers who were inventing new technologies or inventing new things didn't want to commercialize them hmm. because they felt that commercialization of their product, which would, it's, it's sort of a, not, not a bastardization, but it brings impurities into their thinking into the pure research. And it's not true because especially now when new inventions are coming out, new types of technology, um, to commercialize that with a positive impact element on top now is an extra attraction 
And I think a lot of researchers now who are vetting, for example, in artificial intelligence, robotics, um, automation, a lot of these new areas of technology now, I think it's a stronger argument to say, you know, we want to commercialize your technology because, A, it could make strong revenues. B, it can actually add a lot of positive impact to the world. And I think this is a better argument right now. Interesting. In uh, 2010, I started a podcast called Clean Stream on bridging the gap between sustainability and technology. Uh, this podcast is definitely more about the venture scale positive impacts. Um, I'd like to try to tie us into that venture, uh, venture scale positive impact side and also in regards to sustainability. You founded the UN Social Impact Financial um, Finance in Initiative or UNCIF. Uh, can you tell us more about this experience and what led you into the impact side of things? I think it was really interesting when um, when I came out to Bangkok to work for the regional center, um, which is you know anywhere from Afghanistan to China, including all the Pacific Islands, so an incredibly large region. Um, when we started to look at social innovation and social entrepreneurship, we were getting a lot of positive feedback across the board from governments, from uh, from funding organizations, um, from universities, a lot of support. But when I started to talk about impact investing, which is basically taking the principles of impact, at this point the SDGs had been uh, created, so taking the principles of the SDGs, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and having these principles sort of tie into investment models, all of a sudden the pushback really started because at that point it, it was seen that these two worlds are really at opposite ends. One is trying to create impact, one is trying to create profit. And one of the arguments, again, as, as I've said previously, is really to come out saying there's nothing wrong with profitability. Um, it's only, it's simply a measure of how your product or service works with consumers. That's all it is. Yeah, people vote with so, their feet. Exactly, exactly. Now, there may be something wrong with greedy profits, or there may be something wrong with profits that are attained through, um, let's say, screw this sort of measurements. But profits, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. And for and then we started to talk and where we really sort of hit the ground between these two sides is around the development of projects. A lot of projects in the um, NGO areas, United Nations and everything else, a lot of the projects are created for one year, potentially two years. They have a start, they have a finish, and they have their predefined goals. Um, and that was sort of the model that they worked on, and, and they tried to achieve, achieve their predefined goals. My argument was that there is no scalability in that, where a business model, by nature, scales. That's the pro that, that's the whole profit motivation, the whole shareholder value. Mm -hmm. Create a business model that actually scales. That's a successful business model. Well, if we apply a business model to impact, what are we going to get? We're going to get impact that scales. Yeah. And that was sort of the convincing thing. So I sort of had to get off the idea of investment, traditional investment and impact, to really talk about business models. So how do we take a project business model and turn it into a sustainable scalable business model that is actually investable. And that was sort of what kicked off um, UNCIF, was trying to bring these three sides together. And then the resistance started to fall down. And then there was real acceptance. So, and, and this is sort of the, sort of some of the founding principles behind the whole impact investment um, sector right now. 
that a scalable and growing business model means that your impact can scale and grow and impact a lot more people. And you can't do one without the other. You can't have a scalable impact if your model doesn't grow. Um, so these are the two how they sort of came together. And this is a quite successful project. Um, it's now going global. Um, and the, and the, within the UN system, and now the UN system, a lot of the agencies within the UN systems are really starting to redefine their project models um, to see how do they scale. What happens at the end of that project cycle? Do you hand it over to, for example, the private sector to scale it up, or do you hand it over to some sort of blended finance model? Which can you, has can you tell us the, a bit more about blended finance? I know Jed Emerson is uh, is focused on this. Uh, I'd like. I'm going to get him on the show, but I'd like to understand your your take on this. Yes, Jed. Jed coined the phrase. Oh, um, excellent. I think, yeah, his uh, his uh, Twitter handle is actually Ben Value. Um, and Jed and Jed is a genius behind this. Uh, with his book, uh, the, the Purpose of Capital, and these types of things, he really sort of coined that phrase a long time ago. And all it is is sort of mixing the models between a pure grant model and a pure investment model. And there's different purposes to actually do that. So, for example, de-risking. Um, if you take an investment model and you invest 100% in, that's your risk. You're risking 100% of your money. But if you blend that with a little bit of grant money, for example, um, and that grant money actually is being used as um, upskilling, helping the founders understand their markets, helping them maybe develop a product or service that has much more greener raw materials or helping them within their organization to create opportunities um, around diversity, for example. If you were to sort of take 90% of pure investment and 10% of grant, 10% de-risking, that helps both sides. Because quite honestly, for, for the grantor who may be putting in 10% of the money, let's say they're putting in $1 million and the investor is putting in $9 million, for the grantor putting in $1 million, they're getting actually $10 million worth of impact out of it. Lovely, yeah. But for the but for the investor who is putting in nine million dollars, they're actually getting ten million dollars of potential investment return. I see. So it actually works very well on both sides. That they're both sense. actually hitting goals. Now the two sides do have to come together. There's obviously a language difference between uh, donors and funders on one side and investors on their side. They have different measurement models. Um, but they have so, and that's where the process of blended financing actually comes in the mixing of alternative methods of financing but also the cultures of the two are coming together excellent i just interviewed a, a ceo arcady at uh, freewire he was mentioning how certain investors because they're a battery tech company are <coughs> are using metrics in a similar fashion that the lps themselves are urging the investments to have this measurement component and I wonder um, what other things in venture itself can be positively impactful from both the the investment side and also um, from a um, like a, a partnership model you're discussing. Well, I think one of the um, a, a very traditional way of looking at these types of business model is a cross subsidy model. Um, for example, a hospital, which is more or less a public good but a hospital that sells their services out the front door at full cost, but they have a free clinic out the back door for those that can't afford it. Uh, scholarship models in education, those that can afford to pay, pay. Those that can't afford to pay, get in on merit. 
So I think this is the same sort of product, Tom Schutz, a similar model. So I think there are these types of models can also be used. That is, it's not purely the financing side, but the actual business model that's being developed, um, where you are certainly making profitability on one side, but part of that profit is not used in sort of the traditional CSR methodology. Corporate social but it's actually used. Yeah. So, but it's not using corporate social responsibility, which means you're actually, you know giving money for free lunch purposes or giving money for different types of arts and education purposes. But you're actually using your own business model. Yes. You sell your products at full cost to those who can afford, but those that cannot afford it, well, then you actually give a subsidized um, pricing model for that. And, uh, and that's a very interesting model. And, and you see it on public goods quite a bit, education, health, but those can very well be applied across the board. Very well can be applied across the board. Well, this brings us into Section 3, our future on the near horizon. Tell us more about your work with SDGX and with Mohamed Yunus at the Near Future Lab. Well, I think uh, just just off the, off the bottom, I think the next 10 or 15 years are going to be fascinating. Um, they're they're going to hurt to a certain extent because we do have a lot of new technology coming in, but I think is the upside, the potential for a positive impact is huge. And this sort of came out of a conversation. Um, for example, when you look at uh, Mohammed Yunus, who was the founder of the Grameen Bank Nobel Prize winner, um, he sort of coined a phrase called pro-poor technology um, about 15, 20 years ago. And in his mind at that time, pro-poor technology was microfinance, you know, more or less now fintech, small-scale agriculture technology, um, to help rural economies sort of grow. Um, but the discussions that we were having were basically around, I mean, my feeling is that there's no reason why artificial intelligence cannot be considered pro-poor technology. There's no reason why robotics and automation, uh, bionics, um, biotechnology and genomics, IoT and 5G, there's no reason why any of these new technologies um, cannot be considered pro-poor. All it needs is a little bit of nudging, a little bit of persuasion, some influence to sort of see. And now that we're at basically the start of this next phase of technology or, as they say, the digital transformation that's coming, now's the time to really start to, you know, nudge some of the technology to the positive impact areas. And that was sort of the creation of SDGX. And SDGX is more or less a research side where we have the Unis Near Future Lab. It's a venture builder side where we're really not working so much with startups, but working a lot with scale-ups. Um, the the big problem with startups and accelerators and incubators is very it's it's it's, it's easier to get to the borders. It's very difficult to get over the borders, um, especially in Asia where it's not set up like the European Union, it's not set up like North America, where the borders are very soft. Here we have different cultures, different currencies, different regulation sets. Um, so it, it is very difficult to get over borders here. So the venture building that we're doing is dealing specifically with scale-ups, these startups that have a high potential to scale internationally. And then obviously the investment side, um, where we're structuring an investment fund at the moment um, over the next 12 to 18 months. That will come up. What what does the thesis on the fund look like, and what types of stages of companies do you hope to target? Well, I can't. So we're in pre-marketing at the moment, okay. so I can't yep. speak too much about it. But but it will be climate focused, and one of the 
one of the larger areas that we are looking are the subsets within, let's say, intelligent cities, energy, mobility, circular economy, um, manufacturing production. So these are sort of the areas that we're looking so at exciting. as far as uh, a climate tech sort of fund structure that we're looking at. But but when you take these three sort of areas, SDTX, and our focus is deep technology. That's uh, We focus purely on the deep technologies, the new next generation technologies. But SDG is right in our name. So obviously we also have an impact there. So the way that we're structured through these sort of three different areas with a layer of technology translation or technology transfer and an additional layer of impact where we're trying to create positive impact. Um, and so this is sort of the area where SDG now, SDGX is focusing on, based out of Singapore, but we have offices in um, Europe, um, in Berlin, and in Australia as well, um, to sort of look at what we want to do is sort of a bridging ecosystem, a bridging platform to take um, scale-ups from Europe into Asia, Asia into Europe, and vice versa for Australia as well. Fantastic. I do like to encourage a global a global approach to, to venture investing, and I'm, I'm just thrilled that you've shared so much. I also uh, remember from our initial call that you mentioned kind of a difference between an east-west mindset. Can you speak more to that and maybe describe what it means to the listeners? Well, I think there's two sides when we look historically or we look to the future. But historically, when you look at the, the, the wealth that was created in the West, and the West is sort of, it's not a derogatory term, I'm just saying in the developing world when you talk about Europe and North America, a lot of that wealth was created 100 years ago. And it's very old wealth, a lot of it's family run. It has habits, it has models that they've been using for years over years over years. So the concepts, for example, of impact investing, sometimes when you're when you're talking with family offices, sovereign funds, institutional investors, or even VCs, the concepts of impact investing are a little bit hard to digest because they're really set in their world. But when you look at the East, um, a lot of that wealth is basically first or second generation right now. And, and, quite honestly, a lot of that wealth is being managed by women. Um, when you look at the China um, one-child policy, you could more or less bet that a lot of, that half of those children were women, and those families that have created those wealth now are being managed by their daughters. And women have different value systems. Um, so the concepts of impact investing, I find personally, are much easily digested in Asia, for example where the woman value systems um, are much more in tune to more around uh, equality, more around sustainability, um, caring, well-being, these types. Um, and those aren't, those aren't, I don't say that as derogatory terms at all. I think the whole world should go in this direction. Yeah. Um, but I think that is also, and then also what we're seeing is a bit of a shift from the patriarch to the matriarch. A lot of that wealth on both sides that was created by men and managed by men you're starting to see that shift now, where the matriarchs, women are starting to manage the, these large sort of wealth groups. Um, and again, it, it comes down to their value systems, where they're much more inclusive, and they're, they're, they're much more, um, let's say, um, holistic in their thinking and in their, in their investment thesis and that. So I think there is a definite shift. I mean, I don't have evidence on this. Uh, I think it'd be a fan fantastic research area, mm -hmm. um, but I think there is a definite shift. That's one side of it. Looking forward, 
I think there's a, the, the huge difference between East and West is, uh, as a broad statement, I would say that the West is simply over-regulated when it comes to new technologies, Europe and North America specifically. Um, you see this in this uh, discussion, this sort of over overarching discussion around artificial intelligence and the ethics that's required, the principles required. The EU has come up with a principle guideline. Most countries have come up with one. North America, Canada have come up with one. Where in Asia, it's underregulated because they're not they're not structured like the European Union, um, where they have sort of a common regulatory system. It's all over the place in Asia. And I think because of that, a lot of the new technologies are going to get on the ground first in Asia. I think Asia will be the sandbox for a lot of this new technology. And what that's doing, I think, over time will draw talent and draw investment, um, even from the Europeans. And that's why we've created the sort of venture builder around scale-ups. There's a lot of technology in Europe, for example, a lot of startups in Europe, for example, that want to get their technology onto the ground and get it out to the consumers, um, but they can't because of the regulatory systems where in Asia, in certain countries, it may be easier to get that technology out um, and get it on the ground and get it tested uh, so they can be a lot more agile for their product development or their service development. So I think the two, the East and West, I think there are definite differences in their approach to investing and in their approach to the brand new technologies. And, and that's why I'm out here I mean, in Asia. Um, I think this is actually where that technology is going to hit the ground first. Well, I'd like to ask if it would be appropriate if anyone was going to Thailand to maybe touch base with you and uh, connect and learn more about what you're doing. Certainly. I, I don't think that's a problem at all. Whether, I mean, they can contact me through you or if, uh, through the podcast um, or they can contact me directly. But I think there's uh, there's a lot of opportunities and certainly there's a lot more discussion to be had. Yeah, and I did jump ahead a bit. Um, I did notice that you you mentioned a book recommendation on Twitter, Race Race After Technology, which I, I'm going to read. Are there a couple other books that you'd recommend to listeners wanting to create more more impact? Well, I think one one of the founding books it's, it's maybe a year, maybe maybe it's two years old now. Life 3.0 is a very interesting book, and it, it takes the the concept of technology up to the human side. And I think this is where the big changes are going to happen. Um, we often hear about the Industrial Revolution 4.0. We often hear now with the United Nations talk about development 4.0. We see the World Economic Forum talk, talking about uh, governance 4.0, the new governing models as we move into this digital transformation. But I think, um, you know, who's talking about citizen 4.0? And I think that's one of the areas that SDGX is really going to focus on, the Citizens 4.0. And there's another, so Life 3.0 is a very interesting book to read. There's another paper that came out from the Japanese government called Society 5.0. And, and, and they're taking sort of these principles of how, where does the human fit in all this going forward? Um, because there can't only be consumers. We can't only talk about a consumer-centric or consumer-first models. We have to slowly start talking about citizen-first models. Citizens eventually do become consumers, so it's not harmful at all to economics or the business or you know, the future of business models. But I think this is something that we're going to focus on quite a bit, this concept of Citizen 4.0. Maybe I'll write a book on it. I love but it. Citizen 4.0. Yeah, Citizen 4.0. Um, and you know, and, and how does that fit in? Because when you talk about the positive impacts of a lot of the new technologies 
that positive impact is on the citizen. And, and, and I think that's where we can create a much better world for us going forward, a much more inclusive world for us going forward. And maybe a world that's a little less, let's say, complicated. Um, I speak with a lot of students now in their undergrads and grads, even going into their PhDs, and a lot of them are simply confused. They don't know what pathway they have ahead of them because the world is changing so fast. And because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19, um, there'll be more or less an acceleration of the digital transformation. People will start to work from home. Our lives will become a lot more virtual. So a lot of the tools, techniques, and um, social competences have to be adjusted now to to really sort of exploit and leverage this, this virtual tools and virtual um, relationships that we build in the future. Um, and I think that's now another area where the citizen has to be part of that whole thing. I think it's the reason why smart cities didn't quite work. There's too much emphasis on technology, not much emphasis on the people living in smart cities. So this new concept of intelligent cities um, that, that focuses on the technology and the interaction with its citizens, with the humans who live in these uh, urban areas. I think that now will be a much stronger position going forward to advance technology, which I'm 100% towards, um, but also advance the well-being of citizens as well, which I think the world needs. David, I, I really appreciate you today taking the time to share your ideas and, and share your plans for the future. I like your future. I want to live in it. And I think it's a good <laughs> I think it's a good opportunity to invite you back on the show once you actually write that book. Maybe it's, it'll it'll push you to uh, to do that, hopefully. <laughs> Is well, it... I'm looking for a co-author if you're interested. Okay, well, okay, okay. And, and that, that goes to the audience as well. I really like to create opportunities for the community, and, um, and I like to encourage the community to connect and share ideas and, and meet each other. So um, that, that's a general shout-out to everyone. How else can people get in touch with you and uh, get engaged with your work? Well, I mean, very simply, I mean, no other Twitter. It's just simply at Gallopo, my last name. Um... My email is, is, is simple enough. Um, it's basically david at gallico.com, my first name at my last name.com. Again, really, you've you've done an amazing job in your career, and sharing your time with us here is, is I'm very thankful for it personally. I, I feel like I owe much of my own career to you. Thank you again. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I just got lucky. Uh, but I might as well use it while I got it. <laughs>